0: You're listening to the Ollie at UNT podcast, produced by the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas. Learn something new in every episode as we interview UNT faculty, subject matter experts, and lifelong learners in our community. To learn more about our non-credit courses and events, please visit our website, OLLI.UNT.EDU, or send us an email at OLLI at UNT.EDU. Now, let's join our host, Ollie at UNT Advisory Council President, Susan Supak.
1: This is Susan Supak speaking at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas in Denton, Texas, known to most of us as Ollie. I'm speaking today with University of North Texas ecologist, Dr. James Bednars. Dr. Bednars is a senior avian lecturer and advisor of UNT's biological sciences department, specializing in behavioral ecology, conservation biology, and avian ecology. He received his undergraduate degree in fisheries and wildlife biology at New Mexico State University. M.S. degree in animal ecology at Iowa State University and Ph.D. in biology at the University of New Mexico. Dr. Bednars has conducted research on six continents for more than three decades emphasizing avian population ecology, behavior, and conservation. He has researched many different groups of birds including water birds, Waterfowl, game birds, and woodpeckers. Most of his work has focused on raptors and migratory passerines, known to most of us as songbirds. He was also involved in the search for and documentation of the rediscovery of the once thought to be extinct ivory-billed woodpecker in Arkansas from 2004 to 2008. That's extremely exciting. I can say that through personal experience, Dr. Bednars is a teacher, researcher, ecologist, and birder extraordinaire. I had the truly astounding and memorable experience of accompanying Dr. Bednars and his research team out into the field bright and early on two recent mornings as a guest and donor. I learned so much watching him and his team recording information about one of the most colorful birds in North America, the Magnificent Painted Bunting, for UNT's Painted Bunting Project. After the team gathered their information and I received the proper handling instructions, I was actually able to release these glorious creatures back into the world. An absolutely indescribable experience and one I will never forget. Hello, Dr. Bednars. Thanks for joining us.
2: Hello, Susan. Thank you for having me. We greatly appreciate it. Oh, it's great to see you again it's great good. to hear you again.
1: Good to see you too. Can you tell us about the UNT Painted Bunting Project?
2: Well... Painted buntings, as you can appreciate, are a pretty incredible bird. They are amazingly colored. The male is extremely, we call them a rainbow bird. They're, you know, blue head, red front, and a lime green. And, and it's it's hard to describe. It's a bright lime green on the back. And that mixture of colors just is, 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 is a, it's a knockout bird. Uh, and of course that's the male and similar to most birds, the male is more colorful than the female and the female painted bunting is sort of a lime green, but in, in my view, sort of brilliant in her own regard, but, but much more cryptic, which again, in the bird world, Females being cryptic is advantageous to minimizing predation. So they're, they're, they are a marvelous bird in themselves. And as you know, extremely popular with the bird community because of their incredible beauty. But from a scientific point of view, they are, are very understudied. We know relatively little about their breeding ecology and other aspects of their ecology. And they're also a species of conservation concern. Even though we love the painted bunting, I I should say nature enthusiasts and bird watchers love the painted bunting, the populations have been declining for several decades. And so that to me is ripe for a study to understand why they might be declining and to understand their breeding ecology. And of course, they have several interesting aspects of their their breeding ecology. Number one, we're, we because of their the limited knowledge on the species, there's two populations. There's a western population and the eastern population. The eastern population inhabits sort of a narrow band along the Atlantic coast, so Georgia, South Carolina, Florida, and then in the central part of the the country, there's no painted buntings or very few. And then the major population is in the western part of the US, centered on in Texas and Oklahoma, the breeding range of the painted bunting. And they are migratory, so they leave us during, oh, at the end of the summer, they'll leave Oklahoma and Texas and they'll go south and they winter in Central America. Very little study in the Western population. What has been done on the painted bunting has focused on the Eastern population. So that's one reason we're extremely interested in this species. And it has a, a lot of scientific interest. Another interesting aspect of their biology is that as we already discussed, the male's very brightly colored uh, and the females are green. But the second year males are green just like the females. And that's a phenomenon called delayed plumage maturation. And those second year males we know are reproductively active. So the interesting question that we have been trying to address on our project is why are the males green just like the females, the second year males?
1: I saw some of those when we were out and some of them their colors were starting to come in, which was an interesting effect. That is so interesting. Are you having any ideas on that yet?
2: This phenomenon, it occurs to a lesser extent in many birds. It's called delayed plumage maturation. So in the second year of life, these male birds are sort of a mix of their adult plumage and their juvenile plumage. But in the Painted Bunting and one other species of bird, they that second year plumage is almost identical to the female. So there's only two species that, of the 11,000 birds on this planet, that this pattern has been documented in so far. There could be others. Oh. And so scientists, ornithologists, have speculated why, these birds have this delayed plumage maturation. And it seems to be the most extreme in the painted bunting because the green males look exactly like most of them look exactly like the females. When you were out, we actually caught a male with a little bit of blue on his head. That was a second year male. That is extremely unusual.
1: Oh, wow. I got to see that. Yeah,
2: He was a special (laughs) bird. (laughs) Most of them are green, just like the female. And, if you just look at the plumage you can't tell the difference between those second year males and the females but they have a a structure in their cloaca called the cloacal protuberance that stores sperm and these green males have these massive cloacal protuberances so they're producing sperm and so that tells us that they're reproductively active evolution if evolution natural selection would indicate that a a bird or any organism should not be producing sperm if he is not going to use that sperm. So that tells us that he may be reproductively active. So we are addressing hypotheses that might explain this delayed plumage maturation. Like I said, this has been argued in the scientific literature for 50 years or more, and nobody has the data. So again, this is an opportunity for us to try to, to get at the answer to the scientific mystery. Now, the two key hypotheses, and there's, there's several, actually, there's about six or seven hypotheses of why painted buntings and other birds exhibit delayed plumage by maturation include what we call the female mimicry hypothesis. And that is a hypothesis that these young males, again, they're reproductively active, look like females to give them some advantage early in life. And the The most popular version of this hypothesis is called the lower signal status signaling hypothesis. And the argument is that these young green males are basically signaling to the adult colorful males, the rainbow males, that I'm pretty wimpy. (sighs) You You shouldn't beat me up. Okay, because I'm no threat to you because I have a lower status and that allows them to survive and not be attacked by the territorial adult rainbow males because painted buntings. okay, as pretty as they look, they're sort of a violent bird. The males hate each other because they are defending territories and they they literally will attack each other and throw each other on the ground. And you'll see even see feathers flying sometimes until the dominant bird convinces the subordinate birds that okay, I better bug out.
1: They got an ego problem with all that beautiful coloring I uh,
2: well, yeah, They do have an <laughs> ego problem. <laughs> <laughs> Arguing who's the prettiest bird. That's I, tri- I, I that's mean ultimately, right. you know, they're trying to attract females to to be successful in reproduction. But the lower signal statusing hypothesis argues, well, these green males can sort of avoid being roughed up by these colorful adult males by saying, hey, I'm a I'm a wimpy little young guy, you know, you know, let me let me buy. Yeah. Uh, so that's sort of the main hypothesis that is most popular in the scientific literature. The alternative hypothesis that I find very intriguing, as do many scientists, is called the female mimicry hypothesis. And basically, one version of that is these males are green. They mimic the females. They may fool the territorial colorful male in believing they're a female. Therefore, he interested in reproduction and copulating with as many females as he can would allow that green male that he thinks is a female into his territory. And then when he's not looking, he turns around and finds the the, the resident female, the male's female and turns around and says, Hey, I'm really a male. Okay. And then copulates and fertilizes as sneak copulates and with her. And that would, enable that green male to fertilize one or more of the eggs of the clutch she lays, unbeknownst to the colorful territorial male.
1: To the big daddy. So are all two-year males green like that?
2: Yes, they are. Okay. Except with the the exception that you saw when you joined us out in the female, uh, one or two of them, and we're talking on the order of 10%, will have a couple blue blotches on their head but otherwise they're mostly green, but 95% of them, 90 to 95% of them are green. Some of them are, are identical to the females and we could not tell the gender unless they have that swollen quical protuberance, which only would occur in males and not females.
1: I wonder, and it's probably a difficult question to answer, but I wonder, are the babies any different if they've been fertilized by a full-colored male versus one of these, two we can't human. tell.
2: We can't tell. I, that brings us to the essence of our research, and and uh, which has been, been a challenge. Yeah. The main goal is to find nests with a brood of nestlings. Say they have three or four nestlings, and then we take blood samples where we can genetically look at. Who the mother is and who the father is now the mother is undoubtedly the the mom who's sitting on the eggs, and we're also taking blood samples for the territorial males and then we're taking blood samples from the from the neighboring males that have territories and the green birds, the green males, and we're trying to determine genetically who the father is, and you know how many of the eggs are fertilized by the territorial male where that nest is found, and how many might be fertilized by another male painted bunting. The female mimicry hypothesis would argue that at least some of them are successfully fertilized by these green males, these young second-year males.
1: Well, I think it's all fascinating, and I was so impressed by you and Your research team, their knowledge is really incredible and devotion to the project is wonderful to see. They're graduate and undergraduate students at UNT, are they not?
2: They are, and we couldn't do this project without them. The payoff for them is to get the experience my graduate students are, you know, usually have experience, a number of them I've worked with as undergraduates, so I've trained them in the basic skills, how to properly handle the birds, how to take measurements, how to band them safely, and they help me sort of train the next batch of undergraduates in those basic skills of, of banding birds, measuring birds, taking blood samples. And we put them all together in this project. A lot of them are volunteers. Occasionally, we get a small grant that we might be able to pay them a small amount, but most of them are volunteers. The payoff for them is that they get the experience of doing all those techniques, learning all those research skills, and it makes them marketable for a job doing research in wildlife or or avian research.
1: Great experience. Well, we will post the link to the UNT Painted Bunting project to the information about this podcast so people can learn more about it, especially if they'd like to have the experience that I had, which was incredible. Now, on to another topic. You're quite the celebrity. I got my recent copy of the widely circulated Audubon magazine, and the spring issue has you as the cover story with the ongoing American Kestrel research, which was. Fascinating. If anyone, if any of the listeners get that magazine, I strongly recommend they take a look at it or go online and look at it. The pictures are amazing and the information is incredible. It's uh, entitled The Perplexing Decline of the American Kestrel. And I think that's a wintertime project for you.
2: Yeah, so I do painted buntings in the summer and a few other projects. And in the winter, again with with graduate students and undergraduate students, we work on the American kestrel. The American kestrel is a small falcon, also very colorful.
1: Another beautiful bird.
2: And I agree. Like the painted bunting is one of the most beautiful birds in the world. Um, and you know, certainly the birders in your audience, uh, probably appreciate both of those species. And for, if people are non-birders, I really encourage you to, you know, take a look, go to the internet, get a, take a look at a male painted bunting, a male American kestrel and look at the females as well. They're pretty as well.
0: Uh,
2: the, um, the kestrel american kestrel was very is considered one of the if not the most common raptor in north america but it has been declining for at least 50 years
1: that's sad to hear
2: uh and we don't know why we don't know why people have started to sound the alarm about the decline 40 years ago Uh, During systematic surveys, such as the breeding bird survey, which is run by the Fish and Wildlife Service. It's a federal program of volunteers where skilled birders, volunteers, go out and do systematic routes and record all the birds. So it is our best data set. To monitor the change in bird populations, it started in 1966, so it's it's been running for almost 60 years. But that program has shown the American kestrels have been declining for at least five decades. Uh, there are other programs such as the Christmas Bird Count run by the Audubon Society that I'm sure the bird watchers in your audience are often participate, and that survey. Program has also shown American kestrels declining for at least five decades. So the big question is, is why? And there's a lot of researchers that study the American kestrel during the breeding period when they're nesting. They're cavity nesters, so they acclimate to nesting boxes pretty readily, and it makes the American kestrel fairly easy to study during the breeding season. What most researchers have not done is study them during their their wintering period. And in Texas where we're located, North Texas particularly is a key wintering area. So we have as any birder would know, we have huge numbers of American kestrels that come into our area starting in October, building in December, great numbers throughout February, and then the birds depart beginning late February and March and go to their northern breeding grounds. So we started, I started with undergraduate projects in the winter of 2016, 2017. We trap American kestrels that first year. It was part-time undergraduates, and I had to do things like teach classes. So we trapped the 19 kestrels that first winter and put color bands on them with unique codes. So if we could spot them again using field scopes and binoculars, we could see the code on the bird and know that the bird returned. And so our first two questions were, do the birds return to the same territory year after year? Are they site faithful to their winter territories? And if they were, I wanted to if they if they reliably return to some degree to their wintering territories, we could track them year after year and estimate their survival. So that would be the first look at uh, how they're doing in the winter time, which there was very little data available on the American kestrel. And so those 19 birds in the winter of 2016 and 2017, 12 of them came back the following year, which is amazing site fidelity. So that began to answer, Part of our first question, yes, they're very sightful. So so we didn't know where these birds go in their breeding season, but all we knew is that come November, the next year, they showed up usually within 400 meters of where we trapped them. We would see the band combination of the bird we trapped at that location. So they're very sight faithful. So which which, when you think about it, the, that bird had to migrate somewhere up north find a nesting area, a mate, hopefully produce young, and then in the fall, fly back down to North Texas and come to the exact same spot that it wintered the year before. And then come spring, it go up north. And kestrels are also known to show site fidelity on their breeding grounds to a degree. So... Once the birds breed apparently once or twice, they will continue to go back and forth from their traditional breeding area to their traditional wintering area. Okay, so once we answer that question, then we just kept tracking birds every winter. Uh, Now we typically capture between uh, 60 and 100 birds each winter in Denton County, Texas.
1: Wow, that's amazing. Do you ever hear from anyone up north that, hey, we found this American kestrel and it has this ID on it?
2: (laughs) It's amazing you should ask it. Okay. (laughs) Uh, uh, Most of the time, not. Okay. Now, one of the questions, once we uh, uh, started answering these initial questions, we got funding from the Peregrine Fund to put tracking devices on the birds to answer the question of where they breed. And we've been doing that for several years, but we've had some technological problems. We did get data on two birds. One bird, the tracker worked, and when it came back, we successfully downloaded data. It was a male, and it bred in northern Nebraska, so it was like 1,400 kilometers north of its wintering area. The trackers, when they work, give exceptionally precise data. The location data that we download is within 10 meters accuracy. So we knew exactly where it bred. We got a second successful download on a female, Kestrel, and that bred in northern Kansas. Okay, then we put a bunch more trackers out that did not successfully download. So that was very frustrating. I bet. But to answer the question that started my my discussion here is just this summer in May, I got an email from a researcher in northern Kansas, Scott Kimball, and he showed us a picture and he found out that we were putting – Bands and trackers on American kestrels. And he had a picture of one of our kestrels with the band and the tracker on. And he was doing a study on the breeding biology in northern Kansas.
1: Oh, that's great.
2: So we got really excited.
1: Yeah, I bet. I bet
2: you did. (laughs) We got really excited. And now it just so happens, you mentioned that uh, the article in Audubon Magazine had some amazing photographs and was featured on the cover. This bird was the cover bird (laughs) on Audubon Magazine that we caught in December of 22, and Scott found it in May of 23, Breeding in uh, Baldwin City, Kansas. Oh,
1: that's wild.
2: Okay. So he's a Kestrel researcher, and yeah. we immediately communicated and uh, he found the nest. It was in a sort of a crack in the Kansas Department of Transportation. They have sort of a gravel shed facility, and there is a crack in the side of the wall, and that's where the bird nested. And we decided since we've had so much trouble with the technology, is that we we went up to Kansas. My graduate student, Mandy Coletta, and I just dropped everything, and we took a road trip to Kansas, about 450 miles north of uh, Denton, Texas, and met Scott, and we have a mechanical owl, and we use the mechanical owl to try to trap the Kestrel. His, his code is E78. We tried to track E78. E78, again, is the cover boy for the Audubon mag- <laughs> magazine. And because he was nesting and had young, my fellow research, Scott Kimball, documented that. With the mechanical great horned owl, which is a predator of young, the Kestrels will vigorously defend against great horned owls. And we surround it by mist nets, same nets we use to catch the painted buntings. They're a little bit heavier duty than those because Kestrel's a heavier duty bird. We sound round it by nets, and with this is a mechanical owl, he turns his head and he sort of uh, shakes his wings, and that gets the Kestrel all agitated. So we tried that. We got up at, oh, dark 30, as we tend to do with bird work.
1: <laughs> as you do. I, I can uh, I can testify to that.
2: And we set up our aisle, set it up all at night. And uh, the thing is, because of this Department of Transportation shed, and, and you know, Scott facilitated access. He contacted up, and they were very cooperative. They, they gave us a key to the facility, nice. said, come on, and, you know. Do what you have to do to trap this bird. So, so shout out to Kansas Department of Transportation uh, to to really cooperate with this research. Uh, but they had some concrete near the shed where the nest was, and so I couldn't get the nets really close. So we had it. We were about fifty meters away, and the kestrel showed some interest to chase the owl away, but they didn't come close enough to get caught. So we. We were frustrated. We couldn't catch our tracker bird. But I had an idea. Uh, this researcher in Kansas, Scott Kimball, and I got along really well. I trusted him. So I went mechanical owl, and the nets were worth over $1,000. <laughs> so, So I said, why don't you borrow this, okay? And he had an idea that he could drill holes in the concrete so we could set up our net really close to the nest. So we came up with a plan. And it took him a few days to implement them, about a week or so. He drilled the holes, he put the nets right next to the nest, and he caught the male kestrel and the female kestrel.
1: Yeah, good for him.
2: (laughs) Okay, we got our tracker. Good. And we got data on the spring migration route, which was really fascinating. So in doing so, okay, We are starting to answer questions about what happens during these kestrel migration routes, which we think is the area that could be a problem for the kestrels causing the population decline. So we're really excited to get those data. To answer your question, this was a really special circumstances where the network of Bird researchers, raptor researchers worked together and we collaborated and we got some really fascinating information on on this bird and and its migratory route.
1: Along those lines, as an amateur birder, I loved hearing you talk about how the bird counts help researchers like you in determining what they should be looking at in the some of the questions that need to be answered, like the Christmas bird counts and the other bird counts, the bird sits, those things that go on. It's good to know that those numbers really make a difference.
2: Oh, oh, they certainly do. eBird data is used quite extensively to address research questions. The Christmas bird count data is used to address sort of the wintering distribution. It starts to give us insights in migration. Now, that we have to do the tracking and the the more intensive research to work out some of the details. The breeding bird survey, uh, which is still run by volunteers, very skilled volunteers. You, you have to go through some evaluation, but that still, that work is done primarily by very experienced birders. Those data are really important in us understanding the conservation needs of these species and also understanding things like how climate change is affecting these bird populations. So yes, uh, citizen scientists, and, and you know, if you put your observations on eBird or you contribute to the Christmas bird count, not only is it fun and rewarding and educational, but you're also contributing to the science of ecology.
1: Well, I found that birders are very... Passionate people about their hobby and their interests. Birders do that to people. And they're also a very friendly, helpful group of people.
2: Oh, absolutely. They're wonderful people.
1: Understanding the population decline and determining the effort to conserve birds of all kinds is so important to the ecology of a region. And I read a marvelous quote from you saying that, if the birds, the apex predators, are thriving, it's a good indication a multitude of species is also healthy within that ecosystem. Can you tell us about the role that birds play in the environment aside from being some of the most incredibly marvelous creatures on the planet?
2: Yeah, I I think that's, that's really important as an ecologist. As we know, humans have impact on the environment and Birds, as the quote you mentioned, tend to be top-level predators. They, they eat other animals that eat other animals that eat mm-hmm. vegetation, you know, that are based on the nutrients. So it, it's, it's the whole ecosystem operating, and the birds are at the very top of that ecosystem. And I would argue that any top-level predator, such as eagles and, and falcons, are good indicators of functional ecosystem. The nutrients in the ecosystem are cycling the way they should, supporting good vegetation, plant growth, that's supporting the consumers, the animals that eat the plants, herbivores, insects, that are supporting the next higher trophic level of animals that eat the herbivores, primary consumers, and then you have secondary consumers, Snakes eating frogs, for example, and then the birds are eating are the top level, and the the, the other organisms that tend to be apex predators are large carnivores. But large carnivores are very hard to study, and unfortunately, man doesn't get along with large carnivores, and we tend to wipe them out because they can they have economic impacts. They eat our livestock. And so birds are still around, birds in are present, and I think studying birds, if, if we have those apex level predators, birds, eagles, hawks, falcons, uh, even songbirds, which are eating predatory insects, they're fairly high in that as far as uh, apex predators, even the painted bunting, that indicates that the ecosystem is thriving and functioning and cycling properly. So I feel birds are good indicators of the health of our ecosystem. And when bird populations crash, such as concerns about the American kestrel, that indicates a problem. And us as scientists, you know, you know, need to dig into that problem and seeing what problems it's occurring for people. You know, birds provide incredible ecosystem services And those are processes of the ecosystem that benefit humans, that allow us to have a a highly livable environment. For example, birds eat, one of the key ecosystem services that they provide is control of insects. Typical songbird will eat between 800 and 1,000 insects in a day.
1: Wow, I had no idea.
2: Then you think about how many birds are out there.
1: Wow.
2: I mean, everywhere you look, you find birds. I mean, even in the city, uh, you'll find pigeons and starlings and grackles. And all those birds are eating insects. Most of them are eating insects to some degree or another. And then you think about how many birds are on this planet. We can just make a an educated guesstimate. The guesstimate is between 40 and 400 billion birds on this planet. So one researcher, Martin Meffler, tried to put all the numbers together, and he calculated that birds eat 500 million metric tons of insects per year.
1: I can't even get my head around that number. That is very hard (laughs) to wrap your head around.
2: But if we did not have birds, okay, and other wildlife, okay, we would be buried in insects. So pest control, if you will, insect control, is a very important ecosystem service by birds. So if bird populations are adversely impacted by whatever that we humans do, it could come back to bite us big time.
1: Absolutely. It speaks so much to the importance of the research like yours.
2: Well, it, well, I agree, but I'm biased what, as an
1: ecologist. <laughs> so am I. So am I. <laughs> I,
2: I. I could throw out another important example. Please. Uh, vultures. Of course, the key ecosystem service provided by vultures is their scavengers. They eat dead stuff, and that's going to rot and carry diseases. Unfortunately, in the 1990s in India, the livestock industry there started using a anti-inflammatory drug in their livestock, their cattle, called diclofenac, and a lot of the livestock died, and the vultures started consuming these uh, diclofenac-contaminated carcasses. And it turns out that chemical is extremely toxic to the kidneys' function of vultures. And the vulture population in India crashed by 99% in a matter of a few years.
1: By what percent did you just say?
2: 99%.
1: My goodness.
2: And a very rapid decline because this chemical was so toxic. And, uh, you know, the, the livestock, uh, because uh, livestock tended to have in India a lot of anti-inflammatory would reduce the amount of weight they would put on. And so the the livestock operators got less money, so they started using this chemical. And so that sounds good. And of course, they didn't know that it was killing the vultures until biologists like myself, ornithologists, you know, said, oh my gosh, the vulture population is crashing. And then scientists started digging into why. They put their finger on this chemical. The consequences are that the feral dog population exploded in India and uh, rabies exploded. Research has estimated that 50,000 people died of rabies (sighs) infections.
1: Oh my goodness.
2: Now, that's only part of the impact. There are all sorts of other diseases that exploded and there's treatment for rabies. So that doesn't count all the people that were infected with rabies and then had to undergo treatment that cost a, a ton of money when you consider the population of India over a billion people. So that had huge consequences by using this one chemical that wiped out the vulture population that was doing this very important ecosystem service cleaning up dead stuff and preventing disease transmission.
1: It's so important to understand what we're doing. It has such amazing consequences. Like you said, it's just incredible uh, the difference it can make. It makes me think about the fact that some birds and other birds migrate at night. And there is this lights out project that is designed to protect birds from running into buildings and killing themselves while they're flying at night. And I happened to read an article about you and Denton's city council's decision to replace the streetlights with LEDs. And you informed them of the fact that they might not, they might be careful about what they're doing. You wanna talk a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, I, I, I basically a couple of reporters Contacted me and asked me about the, the proposed lighting LED bright lighting system, and and I really pointed out that the research is still at an at infant stage of how lights are impacting birds, and there is some data that they have some, some suggesting they have some huge impacts. Now, the data, and I, I guess all I wanted to convey is that we should be careful and we need more information, and maybe, you know, maybe we should do, do a little bit more research before we open, you know, widely change all the lighting systems at Denton. Uh I, the, the data that's out there suspect lights with buildings are the main concern. As you pointed out, migratory birds primarily migrate at night, but they often migrate at, um, in a higher altitudes, uh, three, four thousand feet. But under certain situations, when uh, a storm rolls in or a cloud cover develops, the birds seem to be attracted to lights, and that's sort of a dangerous situation. It tends to be most severe around tall buildings. So uh, hence lights out program, the idea is if if we get our especially buildings to turn out their lights, that the birds will not be attracted to them and run into the buildings. Certainly, there's a Lights Out program in Fort Worth, there's a Lights Out program in Dallas, and it's a volunteer program. I'm not actively involved. Certainly, I encourage that program to go forward, and, and it's encouraging building managers to basically turn out their lights. It can only help. Bird collisions with buildings is probably the biggest mortality factor for our wild birds. It's estimated that in the U.S. uh, collisions with buildings at night uh, account for a billion bird mortalities each year.
1: Oh, that makes my heart hurt. (laughs) That's so Uh, sad.
2: It it is sad. Uh, If that continues, we, we know our bird populations, if we look at the data from the 60s, have declined significantly. Collectively, our our human development is having an adverse impact. I think it's really important that we try to maintain our bird populations for all the ecosystem services that they provide us. You like insect control.
1: Yeah, it's not just for that particular species. It's not well, just because too. the American kestrel is a gorgeous bird and we want to preserve it. It's for so many other reasons that affect us in so many ways we can't even imagine it, like yeah, the vultures, it,
2: the the yeah. ecological functioning that provides our our well being, human well being. I think is vitally important.
1: Yeah, and we got to get a handle on it now, right now. I, I just. I think what you do is so important because if we go on and on until we see the results, it may be too late.
2: It could be too late or it could be very costly or cause a lot of human distress and harm and even mortality if we don't try to figure out these problems early and address them. And, you know, again, with the lights out program. You know, uh, I mean, I try to turn my lights out. (laughs) Well, there's other reasons too, (laughs) which which is making it hotter.
1: (laughs) Well, I cannot let you go without talking to you about your experience in the search for and the documentation of the ivory-billed woodpecker in Arkansas. That must have been an extraordinary experience.
2: Well, yeah, it was. I, I guess I was in right place, right time. Uh, that, uh, some of your listeners might know the Ivory Bill woodpecker is It's an iconic woodpecker. It has been cherished, uh, loved to death in a way, by uh, Native Americans and birders, because it, it's a huge woodpecker. It was thought to have gone extinct in 1944, and there was a sighting. There are periodically reported sightings all over the southeastern US. But one sighting in Arkansas happened in 2004. And um, I was contacted about participating in a secret search for the Ivory Bill woodpecker Uh, that lasted between March, 2084 till May, 2005.
1: Secret because they didn't want people flooding the area, right?
2: Well, there's two reasons. Okay. Okay. One is there was a report in Pearl River uh, Wildlife Management Area in Louisiana a couple of years earlier. And uh, Zeiss, company Zeiss sponsored a search that involved eight volunteer searchers. And the searchers were tripping over the press. There's a lot of ivory bill woodpecker fanatics out there throughout the world, that just would like to see this bird because it's a huge woodpecker, and it was thought to be extinct. And so that was one reason, is to just keep media from interfering with the search. And the other reason is once the word was out, they were really concerned that land prices uh, would escalate, and the Nature Conservancy wanted to buy up as much land to provide conservation land as possible so it was important to keep a secret so the landowners that would are interested in selling land to the nature conservancy wouldn't raise their prices so those two reasons are why we had a secret search yeah i actually had to sign an affidavit that i would not tell anybody that i was involved in the ivory bill woodpecker search the interesting thing is uh so the way it came about i mean i got a call and I remember early March 2004, it was from a fellow that I knew in the Nature Conservancy. And he said, Jim, I have a special project for you. It was a Sunday night. I was just about to go to dinner for all these details. He goes, but I can't tell you about it unless you promise not to tell anybody else about it. That's a and hard thing. That, that was pretty intriguing. <laughs> I go, I'm not going to tell anybody. Tell me about it. And he goes, there was a you know credible sighting of an Ivoryville woodpecker. Okay. And, Did you uh, just drop the phone? Uh, well, uh, <laughs> I started covering my mouth so my family couldn't hear what I was talking about. <laughs> and they said, well, you know, we thought you might want to get involved and, you know, you can bring in a canoe partner. But you know, he or she has to be quiet too, sworn to secrecy, <laughs> which I did. I had a graduate student at the time, Troy Bader, who was sort of in between his field work, and I knew I could trust them, and I brought him in. And a few days later, we met uh, all these uh, renowned ornithologists in uh, in the middle of nowhere, Arkansas, at a day's end. <laughs> at 5.30 in the morning.
1: 5.30, <laughs> you'll you, you always do everything early in the morning. When,
2: when birds are active. <laughs> <laughs> we had naps laid out on the hood of the cars. Uh, 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 John Fitzpatrick was there. He was uh, the director of the Cordell uh, uh, Lab of Ornithology. And we are in the middle of nowhere, Arkansas, putting maps in the parking lot of a day's in. And there's uh, several other a well-known ornithologist and it was just sur- surreal <laughs> and we headed in the swamp with canoes and kayaks looking for the ivory belt woodpecker now that week we searched we couldn't find anything yeah okay but uh, over the course of the next year they got little bits and pieces of information there were seven sightings uh not me okay um and then they published an article in may 2005 in science, talking about the rediscovery of the Ivory Bill woodpecker. Now, there are skeptics, okay, several people dispute that it was an Ivory Bill woodpecker. I was involved in the search for 14 months. I did not see an Ivory Bill woodpecker. I also saw that there are a lot of, you know, both paid and volunteer people looking for the Ivory Bill, and they really wanted to see that Ivory Bill woodpecker and I saw how human nature makes a pileated woodpecker, which is a large common woodpecker that is similar in appearance to the ivory bill. Now they made it into an ivory billed woodpecker. And I like to think that I was more critical. And I mean, I was literally saw two people yell and there's an ivory bill. And I knew it was a pileated woodpecker. And these were experienced birders too, but they really wanted to see an ivory bill woodpecker. It, You've got to be careful about uh observer expectancy bias. We all have yeah. that. Yeah. Okay. And I mean the main one of the main differences between pileated and ivory bills is where the white is in the wing. In the ivory bill, the wing is in the posterior part of the wings. And in pileated, the there's white in the wings, but it's more in the anterior part of the wings. But under the right light conditions, and I've seen this, the white in the front of a pileated woodpecker wings will sort of blur or bleed. So it looks like it's on the back part of the wing. And if you really want to see an ivory Bill woodpecker, that's all it takes.
1: You see it. No one has seen one recently, have they?
2: There continues to be reports. Okay. During the search I was involved with in Arkansas – like I said, there were seven sightings in the four-second blurred videos. Uh, you can look at the video online. It's available. It is really hard to tell. I think it's an ivory Bill woodpecker, but there are other, and it's blurred, mm-hmm. other experts that would argue it's a pileated. Um, I thought the analysis at the Cornell Lab was was very objective. They've looked at things like the wing flap rate, which is quicker for ivory-billed woodpeckers than pileated woodpeckers. And we know that because we have video from the 30s on flying ivory-billed woodpeckers, so you can actually count the flaps per second. And of course, we have video on pileated, and it's faster. And they fly different. The blurred video, you know, the colors are hard to make out, but I I think it matches the ivory-billed woodpecker. But again, there are experts, you know, equ- equally competent to me uh, that would argue that it's a pileated woodpecker. I think it's an ivory Bill woodpecker. But there was only one It was cited seven times. And when they got a good enough look to see the gender, it was always a male. So I remember telling my friends at the Cornell Lab, including John Fitzpatrick, well, what if it's the last one? It's the last male. And uh, they said, no, Jim, if there's one, there's got to be more. And uh, I mean, after 2005, it was never sighted again in that area. So I'm wondering if it could be the last one. Hmm. Uh,
1: Hopefully it's out there somewhere. I,
2: w- I would hope. I would I would do my best uh, as a conservation biologist to do anything I can to, to try to save it if, yeah. if it's out there. However, logic tells me the numbers are probably so low, even if we found one or two, it would be very difficult to bring them back. But I would try as a conservation biologist.
1: What an experience for you to be a part of that.
2: Well, it was exciting. Uh, you know, I didn't even tell my wife.
1: <laughs> You're good. <laughs> They'll so, give you a secret clearance at the army or defense department. That was
2: true. Yeah, the the nature conservancy had a cover story. We were doing an inventory project <laughs> in the in the area where the white the ivory bill. So I was you know, every once a week. I go on the inventory project. <laughs> And then when the the news broke on NPR on uh, April 28th, 2005, and my wife said to herself, ah, that's what he was doing.
1: (laughs) Well, I'm impressed. I'm impressed you could keep that a secret. That was a big story. Definitely. I can't thank you enough for joining me. This has been fascinating. And I know people have learned a lot from it. You know, this is fantastic. Thank you.
2: Well, it was my pleasure. It was great always talking with you, Susan, and I look forward to visiting with you again, perhaps on another podcast.
1: Absolutely. Thank you.
2: Thank you so much.
1: This has been Susan Supak speaking at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas with ecologist Dr. James Bednarz. Thanks for listening.
0: The Ollie at UNT podcast is recorded and edited by Susan Supack and produced by me, Jordan Williams. If you enjoyed this episode, check out our previous interviews and subscribe to this podcast in your favorite podcast app. To receive email notifications about each new episode, join our email list at olli.unt.edu slash podcast.